Hello and welcome. This is Being Human. I'm Jo Frost and in this episode, my co-host Peter Linus and I are chatting with historian, author and lecturer, Dr. Sarah Williams. A few weeks back, we all got to sit down over Zoom with Sarah to hear about how the loss of her daughter turned her world upside down and how it led her to radically re-evaluate everything she thought she knew about what it means to be human. We chat history, language, embodiment, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this. Hey, so it is my pleasure to welcome Sarah Williams. Sarah is a historian, a specialist in 19th and 20th century cultural history. Um, Sarah, you were one of the most loved uh, lecturers at Regent College. When I was there, I got to study under you. You're still a research professor there and teach some courses. My wife, I think, got to take mapping gender. I listened in on church and state in the modern world. I love the perspectives you're bringing on marriage and sexuality and historical approach to that. It is wonderful to have you here. You've many, many hats, but thank you so much for giving us the time and joining us today. Thank you for letting me be with you. I'm going to ask you about your other shared passion because I think pedagogy and, and communicating learning is is one and, and history is obviously other and you've you've hinted at this but I mean it's it is more than a vocation it's a passion which you communicate when you're teaching you grew my love of history but I mean why history why why do we need to keep looking back because we desperately need to hear voices that are not just our own And the danger when we only live in the present is we believe ourselves to be normative throughout all time. (laughs) And the glory of studying the past is the possibility of encountering people who think in ways which are qualitatively different from the ways that we think. And so by allowing the past to genuinely ask us questions in the present, that helps us to see our own blind sides, our own, the, the, our own, lives in context, in a context that's bigger than our own subjective perspective on that context. So I think the past is extraordinarily important. Um, And it's, it's full of hope for me, because if people in the past were genuinely different in the way that they thought and assumed from the way I think and assume today, that means that maybe in the future, people will think differently from me. And that I'm not on some kind of determinative journey through time where the way I think about reality is going to determine entirely everything that will be thought about reality in the future. In other words, studying history gives me confidence in the possibility of change. I remember, I want to ask you about a book, the first book that I read. The first time really, Sarah, I encountered you was through a book first and then in class. And the book was The Shaming of the Strong, and I remember reading it, and I remember very clearly in Vancouver in our little apartment when we were studying at Regent, at about 1 a.m. or something, my wife saying, you're not going to bed. I said, I'm nearly finished. I'm, I'm just, I'm capped it. This book has completely, you know, I'm absorbed in it. And at about 3 a.m., I finished it on our bathroom floor because Rose had gone to bed and there was nowhere else to read, and I was kind of hidden away. And it, it just, it blew my mind, and it, it's how I encountered you, and so... I'd love, and as much as you feel able to do that, just to share a little of that story. Like you've, that book is now called Perfectly Human, I think, in a, in a new version. Um, and it really helped me in particular think about some of this Being Human project that we're involved in. And I suppose it's also part, a significant part of your story. 
So I'd love you to share a little more about that book and how it's impacted you. The writing of that has impacted your understanding of these ideas of what it is to be human. Hmm. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote the book uh, after um, a really life-altering experience uh, that happened in 2002. Um, Paul and I were pregnant with our third child and we found out at the regular 20-week scan that the baby that we had been longing for and praying for for a long time actually had um, very significant fetal abnormalities, um, a, a sort of lethal skeletal dysplasia that um, the doctors explained to us would result in her death either at birth or shortly after birth. And that experience took me on an extraordinary journey having to make a decision whether or not to terminate the pregnancy. That was the recommended medical um, kind of solution to what was seen as the predicament we were in. And Paul and I didn't, didn't go down the route of, of terminating the pregnancy. We, we spent the next weeks of the journey of the pregnancy with, with our daughter, Kerry, and carrying her towards her death. And that experience, it, it has changed my life. Um, and the encounter that I had with my unborn child as she uh, was alive inside me, but also the encounter that I had with God at the time of our daughter's death has, it has changed everything for me. Um, it turned my value system upside down. So until that, that, that time of the pregnancy, I was teaching at the University of Oxford. Paul was a, a, a chief economist for a multinational in London. Our lives kind of had a shape. They had a form and we were on a trajectory of achievement that we had both been on all of our lives. And my value systems were kind of embedded in that um, way of being in the world that was strong and capable and effective. And suddenly I had this encounter with this extraordinary person, my daughter, Carrion, called her. And it was as though I got to see first up an entirely different perspective on what it means to be human because she didn't have even any legal rights that dignified her with personhood. She had what the doctors described as um, a suboptimal body. She wasn't physically normal, um, in inverted commas. And yet she was, she was just an extraordinary person. I don't know how else to describe it. And I loved her. And this experience of loving my daughter, it, it challenged my own perceptions on what constitutes human strength and human weakness. It absolutely rocked them to, to, the, to the ground. I don't know how else to describe it. But when she uh, died, we expected that she may well die in considerable pain. I think that was the hardest part of the whole experience for us. And yet, when she died, she died just in the very last stage of, uh, just before the last stage of the um, birthing experience, just before she entered the birth canal. And she died of a placental abruption, which can happen in any stillbirth. It doesn't actually 
It wasn't actually the result of her abnormalities as such. And at that moment of her death, when I was on my own in the delivery room, I just say I encountered the presence of God in a way that I have that but I've never I had never encountered before. It was so intimate and so personal and so powerful and so holy. And I just knew that God, uh, the Almighty, had come to take this tiny little baby home. And his love for Kerian just changed and reframed my whole perspective on what really matters in life. Um, and it began a journey for me that turned everything upside down. I ended up leaving the University of Oxford, journeying to Canada, a very different context. And God put different kinds of desires and passions in my heart. Most of all, through that experience, I fell in love with Jesus, with him as a person, with this beautiful God who loves the weak and the vulnerable who hears their cry and who doesn't define his love and bequeath it on the basis of what we achieve or our usefulness or our capacity. And that love just blew me away and it has ever since. And it's changed everything about what I think matters in life. And ever since then, my work, my academic work, my reflections, my intellectual life have been grappling with this fundamental question what does it mean to be human what's it mean to be in relationship with god what's it mean to have a body what does it mean to have a physically normal body is there such a thing as a physically normal body what does it mean to have intrinsic or inherent worth as a person what does it mean to have identity what is identity where does it come from where does personhood itself come from? And what does it mean to live in community as, uh, as, 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 as relational beings? Sarah, well, firstly, thank you for sharing your story. And I think what you've just beautifully articulated is why when we were um, constructing this idea of the interview season for being human, you were... Uh, at first it was a list of one and it was your name. Do you want to explain a little bit about what, um, how we're con conducting this interview and maybe what, what we are trying to explore even in this moment? Well, we haven't got, we're on Zoom and I'm sitting in Gloucestershire. Peter's in Ireland, Joe's in London. And unlike most of COVID, we've turned off our screens. So we're just talking to each other. So all we have is language. All we have is voice. And just in the way that, you know, by, by the experiment of turning off our screens and putting ourselves in the dark, as it were, that disorientation that we experience, that has been the experience of culture through many major turning points in, in history. For, for the people of God through time, they've encountered moments over time when there has been radical, abrupt and fundamental culture change. And somehow within this moment, we have to find, um, as the people of God have done at crucial turning points in history before, we have to find our way back 
into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to encounter him all over again and ask him again, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in relationship with the living God and with one another in creation as embodied creatures? What does it mean? And we have to find some fresh language to be able to talk about and communicate in this moment of time and not assume that the language we have used in the past will necessarily be able to communicate effectively at this moment. There are two slightly different things that I'm really interested in. The changes since the 60s that have been accelerated, and you were hinting at what those are, and this is, and you can go on either of these first, but you also talked about the weaponizing of language. Let's talk about weapons and language first and move back. Okay. So I've been thinking a lot about acronyms. <laughs> we have to think about acronyms because so much of who we are is in fact being reduced at an extraordinary rate to acronym. But I, I, I did a little research on where the word acronym comes from. And it's so interesting to me that it's a product of the 1940s. It's a product of, of the Second World War. Um, and in a way, it's, it's a product of that period of extraordinary chaos when all the certainties of the modern period collapsed in the devastations of total war. And it's taken acronym from, from the Greek and it literally means the end or the tip. And if you think of it as a tip, I think of it the way I imagine that word is like the end of a javelin or a spear. <laughs> it's sharp. And, and, and that cutting of language into tips, into acronyms with which we fight one another, that we, we, we compartmentalize one another, we put one another into, into certain kinds of boxes, we nuance one another in, into tighter and tighter definitions through these uses. And I want to say one thing, and that is through the modern period, Christianity was associated with power. And we used language in the modern period through our understanding of power to create coherent definitions that ordered reality and people and nations and relationships between nations in certain ways. And so as our language, as it were, becomes weaponized and collapses into anarchy, I think that we have to think long and hard about our responsibilities in using language in ways that wielded power instead of fostering and nurturing relationships, as I believe God intended language to be used in the first instance. Oh, my brain has just gone in a thousand different directions. Um, uh, on your last point um, on power and language, I've been reading uh, Dr. Diane Lamberg's book on redeeming power and abuses in the church. And she talks about how the church or people in authority within the church have taken God's language and words and used, weaponized them and used them to excuse abuse or to shut down conversation. So I think there is certainly 
a responsibility and a reckoning moment when it comes to our language and how we have used language to dehumanize um, others, to increase our significance or, or our subjectivity and objectify others. But there's also just this, this feeling that, that seems to bubble up and manifest itself in so many different spaces where we're using the same words, but we do not share the same meanings. Yeah. And, um, and it's so frustrating as a communicator, as somebody whose absolute life passion is the use of words and imagery and imagination to communicate, to produce effect and change and transformation and progression and see the goodness of God come in so many different facets. Language is our tool, and yet it feels like it is both being sharpened to a tip, but also blunted um, and negated because it's becoming, words are becoming meaningless because there isn't that commonality of understanding. We don't share the same rubric, uh, the same understanding, and so we're always talking across purposes. I think you described that so well, Joe, and I, I, I almost want to riff off what you're saying to talk about what it's like when we encounter another person. And maybe it's, maybe, maybe I'm jumping the gun in our conversation. You want to take us on a journey that's sequential, but no. <laughs> In my own heart, I've got to a place where I almost long to ask people, how do you want me to name you? Mm -hmm. Who are you? Tell me where you come from. Tell me about you. Tell me about your embodiedness. Tell me about what you hate. Tell me about what you love. Let me listen to how you describe yourself. I want to hear your heart. And, and there's something in me that has got to the point where I can hear something in the heart cry of the culture that is rejecting these binaries. I don't even kind of understand what that means. But when you look at all this myriad array of acronyms, when you look at the way in which the word male and female, these beautiful um, mysteries of God's creation, these are now words that we're using that are on the front end of our weaponry, our arson that we use against one another. Then the gift of actually listening to one another seems to me profound and powerful. Giving one another the gift of space to actually articulate selfhood, to, to, to hear other people using language. And I, I wonder whether in this next move of God, and I think God, I think something exciting is happening in our culture, whether this isn't a time where we learn in silence to listen with humility and we allow God to do what I think he is doing, which is to reclaim the purity of his gospel from our structures of power that have so damaged his gospel in the modern period. And I think our capacity to allow our hearts to be stretched, to listen, um, 
listening in a way is the beginning of language, isn't it? Mm. Hearing. Faith comes by hearing. We hear the voice of God. Adam heard God speak. And um, if we could give our culture the quality of listening as we listen to God in a fresh way, and I'm struck by the word the liturgy over and over again, Peter saying to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to go. Mm. And, and in a sense, prayer, and this brings me back to what I was writing about with these, these women this morning, prayer is the place where we get to listen to God, to raise our own voices to him and lament in supplication, in desperation, where we get to find heart language in the intimacy of our own dialogue with God. And I believe that's where God is going to speak to his church and give his church language that we do not currently have. And I think it starts with listening. So my... I'll give you my honest, I go, yes. And there is a butt sitting in behind because I want to listen. And I don't think we've done that well enough. But there's a, how do you hold that tension with the weaponizing that you've you've also identified? And I think I, I do agree with, there is a movement to deconstruct language, to change meaning to add a level of subjectivity so how do we balance the how do you want me to name you and listening with uh finding ourselves in what is to some extent a language game that's being played i love i love i i love i love what you've just said Pete, because it immediately directs us back to what joe said about the imagination because because if god gave adam responsibility to name, then actually we cannot retreat from the God-given responsibility that we have for language. We, God called creation into being. He spoke creation into being. And our culture-making, our co-creating with God, our participating with him as creator is finding language. And I I'm not advocating that we, we cease to find language. What I see in our culture is the desperate conclusion of a philosophical pathway of deconstruction that can only deconstruct, that can only critique and tear down, and that has no generative capacity within it to create language. It has nothing within it that enables the imagination to go beyond the deconstructing of what is. And I think what I, I'm coming to see and believe with all my heart is that we're at a moment when we need, desperately need as a culture, construction. We need the ability to imagine something good. We, we need the ability to be able to talk about and describe what constitutes beauty. We need to be able to name something which takes our breath away because of its extraordinary beauty. And I think in the modern period, we fell prey to that process, even in the way we did apologetics, of, of tearing down arguments. And we're at a moment where we are 
coming to silence because we have got no language yet. And it's prayer where we will find the language, where we'll cry out to God so desperately in, 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 in yearning, in groaning, that language can't even, as Romans 8 says, language isn't going to cut it here. And we've got to find that place as the people of God where we cry out and yearn to see God move and speak so that we have language and that our feet will be beautiful. And, and that image of, of, the, of, of beautiful feet running across the mountains towards the culture with the good news of the gospel of peace. Somehow we need the vitalizing power of the presence of God to speak to us again, to bring new language that will mobilize and empower, awaken our imaginations, to bring to our culture the message of peace that is unutterably beautiful because the gospel is good news. And we cannot live on the way in which we communicated that gospel as it were, secondhand from modernity. We're at a moment where we've got nowhere forward but into the presence of the living God who has the words of eternal life and we have to hear them again right from his own mouth. I mean, you're areas or some of your areas of, of expertise and interest around issues around like sex and gender and history and as a father of daughters and, and I know Joe's a mom of daughters but for me I'm going so they are females they are girls becoming women and I am trying with Rose to navigate what that means to express something positive that that is both important but actually your being human is more fundamental than that, but that doesn't deny that sex, as in biological sex, is an important part of who you are, but I am still struggling to articulate well what that means and why I think it's important and what that looks like for them in ways that are healthy and not constrained by stereotypes. And it's challenging. It's unbelievably challenging. And if it doesn't drive us to prayer, nothing will. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that longing that you have as a dad, Pete, that I have as a mother, it, it goes beyond our capacity to articulate, doesn't it? And mm. the love that you see for your girls, the love that, um, you know, I've, I feel towards my, uh, my girls are just in a season of getting married, but the love I have for my nephews and nieces who, who are struggling in the playground every day with out identities unless they name their identity using language that they have imported from the culture. Mm. And so it's almost as though they have no other options but to begin to describe themselves as bisexual. Yeah. I don't even think you know what that means when you're 14. I have no idea what that means when I'm 53. I have no idea what it means. And you can almost feel the straining in the language, that kind of yearning. But I also know that the yearning in my heart as a, as a mother, as an aunt, to kind of almost envelop my nephews and nieces in something which is beyond my capacity to articulate that gives dignity to their personhood. Mm. Um, and... I, I, I don't I, I don't know 
any other language but the language of prayer right now. I feel like we have to live in, in Romans 8. We have to live in that yearning that goes beyond language as we learn to intercede for our young people. Because if we're playing language games, they are feeling the effects of the weapons of the language of the culture, stabbing their bodies day after day after day in the playgrounds. It is unbelievably uh, embattled what they're having to face. Um, and if it doesn't, like I said, if, it, if that doesn't drive us to prayer, nothing will. Um, uh, the battle that we're in is very fierce and it's very real. And there is a desperate need. You know, it's that, that cry of Peter, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's like we, if COVID, if in this period of lockdown, if we were not driven to prayer, then, then there's a little part of my heart that says, Lord, do more than COVID to get our attention. Do something to draw us close to your heart that we might hear your heart again and get, get the passion that you're feeling in, into, our, into, our, into the fiber of our being because that's what will produce in us the ability to generate something new. It's such, uh, oh, it's such an important challenge because as you were talking um, before about, about the possibility of new language, of taking our responsibility, of naming our world seriously, I was thinking back to your story at the beginning of this conversation and the dehumanizing nature of the language used during your pregnancy, suboptimal life and um, predicament, and uh, these these words that stripped your daughter of her personhood and have stripped you and Paul of parenting in that moment. Our language dehumanizes um, uh, us as both as individuals and as a society at this time, and and I. I really resonate with your plea for us to go back to the silence, to the secret quiet place, to look upon the countenance of the father and say, what, what do you, who do you say I am? Yes. And, and actually at that point, because one of the things we've been wrestling with all, all the way through this is, is that our identity and our culture is, is self-imposed. We, I choose. You, you were saying, who do you say you are? Tell me about your life. Tell me how you want to be known. That, that projection of identity. But actually, for me, my identity is a received one. I receive my identity from my father. I am a child of his. I am his beloved. And it's because he says I am. And how do we then grow in that language, in that imagination, in that construction of, um, of human flourishing? And how do you take that into the playground? How do you take that to the dinner table for the conversations with your family, into the workplace? Um, therein lies for me the challenge. Yeah, and the, uh, I think that the, 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 the way that our culture insists on the autonomy of the person in language is an extraordinary thing when you when you reflect deeply on what language is because mm -hmm. if language is in a sense the very it, 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 the, the gift of our relationality then to place on the individual as a unit sole responsibility and the sole right of naming 
that autonomous individualism populates the way we imagine ourselves to have the right to name our own reality. The, the, in a sense, it's the, it's the absolute opposite of what language, <laughs> what language can be and should be and, and could be. All of, in other words, when I named Kerian, choosing her name was a, was a big deal for us and it just means loved. Hmm. Well, it was such a big deal for us because we had so many ways in which we w- w- could love our daughter taken away from us as we faced the possibility we may never even hold her alive. Naming her while she was in the womb was incredibly important to us. And that act of naming was our expression as a family of our love for her. And we have changed that around in our culture by giving to the individual the autonomous right to name themselves. Mm-hmm. And in even doing that, we've taken away the powerful um, quality of love that comes from giving one another's identity through, through our capacity to name uh, one another. And I, I just, I just, you know, just that. The other thing I wanted to say about language is this, that, it seems to me in times of history where there is confusion, there is always lack of clarity in language. And clarity brings peace. When God speaks, it brings peace. And language is one of the beautiful ways in which the peace of God, the clarity, the authority, the wisdom of God breaks into reality. And so when language is used imprecisely, bluntly, badly, abusively, it negates something about the character of God himself. So, for example, for me, it is important and significant that the word gender is introduced in 1963, right in the midst of the vortex of that moment of cultural sexual revolution. And the word gender is employed initially to make an important distinction between cultural constructions of masculinity and femininity, that cluster of traits and values that we use in culture to describe what it means to be male and female, to distinguish those from biological sex, from the givenness of createdness in male and female. And the introduction of the word gender was really, really important. And for me, as a Christian feminist, it couldn't be more important because by using two words instead of one, it gives us the ability to be more precise, to be clear, to be able to say there is something about sexual, biological, sexual integrity that matters but there is also something about the way in which we construct cultural ideas of gender and sexuality which also matters and by having two words we're able to enter into complex thinking about those distinctions about how those two dimensions play with one another and work themselves out in our experiences of reality. By the 1990s, and again, it's extremely interesting to me when in time this happens and what's going on, but by the end of the 1990s, the word sex 
was in many arenas of culture simply replaced by the word gender. And we got rid of two words and we went backwards to one word. We got rid of the capacity to talk well about biological sex. And we made everything to do with being male and female a matter of gender, the cultural construction of those ideas. The minute we went back to one word instead of two words, we stripped ourselves of the ability to think well about the highly complex distinctions between those two dynamics of what it means to be human, male and female. And that to me was a profoundly regressive move in culture. And I would like to see us finding ways of mobilizing greater specificity in our language to think more deeply and in more creative ways about the extremely difficult relationship between biological sex and cultural constructions of gender. We have stripped ourselves of the ability to do that by negating the two words and using only one. And that's a move that happened within the philosophical categories often referred to as queer theory. Um, and I think that it has led us down some paths that are not helpful when it comes to freeing men and women to be more fully who they are as unique individuals. It's flattened and dulled our capacity. It hasn't mobilized and released it. So. I was going to say we, we had a fork in the road some time ago and one was language and one was change, but I think you've really brought them back together. Uh, I think some of the changes we were looking at since the 60s because the language is key on that. I was thinking when you were saying that back to marriage, family, sex, both the act of sex and biological sex and gender were some of the changes where we've seen things and language is obviously a huge part of that. And the lack of clarity, as you've said, and the loss, I think, of Christian heritage in some of those terms, so that we feel we're on the defensive as Christians, that this is new stuff pushing us back, failing to recognize, I think I've heard you speak on this before, around the importance of equality and freedom and consent as core Christians, Christian ideas that help frame much earlier versions of that conversation. And so we feel more defensive than we should. We've got stuff wrong, but we've also as Christians more largely help shape the conversation in helpful ways. And we seem to forget that. So the cultural waters we're swimming in feel really uncertain to us. And actually there's probably more things we should be able to hold on to and cl claim back. That maybe sounds too defensive. Is that, is that fair? Um, I think that we have extraordinary treasure in the Christian tradition that enables us to talk well in ways that culture has not typically outside the Christian tradition been able to talk well about what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female. I think that the modern period may be a period we have to draw some lines under <laughs> with humility, but the long resources of the Christian tradition give us extraordinary resources to, to talk about this moment in time really, really well. So, for example, going back to the 11th century, thinking about the very gift of the idea of consent itself, that's a gift of the Christian tradition. Um, the, the introduction into the marriage ceremony of a woman saying, I do, giving her consent to be married, that is a Christian idea. It didn't exist 
without the gift of the Christian faith. And so that giving of, of dignity, of value, idea of, of the separateness of male and female as, as integral beings in their own right, those are bound up with our own faith. And the way in which the political story of our culture is, is telling the story of sex is to make Christianity, modern Christianity particularly, the enemy mm. of uh, freedom, freedom of every kind, but particularly the enemy of women and the enemy of all forms of sexual freedom as freedom is being configured, particularly in that. So Christianity is the enemy in the story. And it, it is just so wrong because it, it, it may well be true of certain moments in the way that the church has ordered its life. But when it comes to the long history of the Christian tradition, it, it, it just doesn't stand up as a historical argument. And that brings us right back to what you asked about at the beginning about my passion. We have to give the past its own integrity by recognizing that we haven't always thought the way we do. And that there are other moments in time that thought differently from our moment in time. And we can allow those moments to, to fuel us, to give us um, new furniture give us new language of the imagination to think outside the paradigms of the modern period about what it might live, what it might look like to live in community, for example, uh, what freedom might look like, what autonomy might look like, um, whether or not individualism is the primary unit of what it means to be human. Um, what does political participation look like? What does it mean to live in a political society? What does it mean to act in ways which express dis dissent and discord in society and in a political culture? We have long resources for this in the Christian tradition. Um, we have nothing to be ashamed of, but we do have some things to repent of. Yes. So what we see around us now is not normal in the sense that it has always been this way, which can sometimes be the feeling. And the past is not a golden era that we're trying to get back to, but it does have some of the threads that we can pull on because actually some of those key ideas around consent and equality come particularly from Christian framing of the past. And as we look to the future, we need to pray for new language and new ways to frame this. Otherwise, we're always going to be on the back foot and on kind of the receiving end of the weapons of culture, unless we're a bit wiser and more spiritually savvy to that, if you like, in, in the prayerful space to find new ways to engage. Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think beyond almost, if there were only one thing that... that we took away from this, I think it's about the posture of our hearts. Um, because it, 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 we've got to such a moment where our wisdom, our techniques, our abilities to even be savvy are being disorientated. Do you understand what I mean? So the posture of our hearts, the fragrance of our hearts, I think is, is absolutely crucial. Sarah, I want to thank you so much we, um, for, for giving us your time, for taking us on a little historical tour, for sharing from your own story and experiences. 
there is so much more in there, but I think you've challenged us so much around language, um, but also around prayer. And so I, for one, am extremely thankful as a parent uh, uh, and as a per person and individual operating in this space. Um, yes, thank you again. Thank you. So there you go. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. More information about Sarah and her work can be found in today's show notes. For more information about Being Human, do visit beinghumanproject.co.uk where you can find out all about what we're up to, previous seasons from the Being Human podcasts, articles and resources about what's coming next. Don't forget to subscribe to Being Human wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, take care and God bless.